Welcome to Radical AI, a podcast about radical ideas, radical people, and radical stories at the intersection of ethics and artificial intelligence. We are your hosts, Dylan and Jess. In this episode, we interview Dr. Mary L. Gray, Senior Principal Researcher at Microsoft Research and Faculty Associate at Harvard University's Berkman Klein Center for Internet and Society. Along with her research, Mary teaches at Indiana University, maintaining an appointment as an associate professor of the media school with affiliations in American studies, anthropology, and gender studies. She is also the co-author with Siddharth Suri of Ghost Work, How to Stop Silicon Valley from Building a New Global Underclass. Mary is an anthropologist and media scholar by training and focuses on how everyday uses of technologies transform people's lives. A few of the big picture questions that we ask and discuss in this interview include, in what way does technology make us more or less visible to each other? In what way does technology make us more or less understood by one another? What is ghost work and how might it impact the future of work? What is the role of compassion in changing systems of technology? It was such a pleasure to be able to talk to Mary about these topics and more, especially because Mary wears so many different hats in her research life and in her work life and in her life. Um, She is one of the foremost uh, experts on bringing queer theory into this work, uh, also in making sure that we as as scholars and also as uh, industry professionals are looking not just in urban settings, but also in rural settings and really trying to widen uh, that circle for where our research is occurring and where we're looking at our downstream impacts as technologists. It is our pleasure to present to you all this interview with Mary Gray. So it is our absolute pleasure to welcome Mary Gray to the show. Mary, how are you doing today? I'm doing good. Thanks so much for having me here, Dylan. Absolutely. And as we begin today, uh, we've seen your name come up a lot recently in various different places. So we know that you're super busy. And uh, before we get into everything that you are doing, we were wondering if you could just tell us a little bit more about yourself um, and how you, really what makes you tick right now? Yeah, I mean, I... It's funny because I feel like I keep coming back to why do I ask these questions? Because often I'm these questions around what constitutes ethics, what it means to make change, create change through scholarship, um, when it can be so personally frustrating <laughs> and um, completely absorbing. Um, you know, I'm trying to remind myself what what is it that brings me to this work. Um, why I don't go off and do more gardening or dog walking. Um, and it, it, it comes back to my earliest work was thinking as a, as a political organizer, as a queer youth activist, what difference does the internet make? I mean, I, I genuinely started most of my, my scholarship, my intellectual work thinking what difference can we make um, as political actors who want to affect change and challenge uh, systemic oppression and injustice, what role will this technology that at the time was relatively new and really was mainstreaming in in the early 90s when I began thinking about these questions, which as I say that out loud, I'm not sure I wanted to say that out loud, but um, you know, that is what that that question is what took me to graduate school. And at the time I was studying anthropology, I, it was really anthropology was kind of and Native American studies were my areas of study as an undergraduate. And they um, they saved me in so many ways. Like I came out of a, a part of the country, Central California, that for the most part had a very um, set, uh, relatively narrow collection of things that women did or were expected to do. And I, I didn't really feel like I fit many of the boxes that were available to me. Um, and going off to college was incredibly disorienting. And I latched on to these two disciplines that are mostly about teaching us to think of the world as this constant running um, experiment of what humans and groups of people can make of the world, how they make sense of the world, how they 
challenge norms, how they reproduce norms in the same uh, stroke. And so those, those two disciplines that actually were at each other's throats, to be honest, um, are what shaped my taste in questions. They are the, um, the lenses, the equipment that I uh, came into. And then as I was starting to do political organizing, particularly outside of cities, but with colleagues in cities too, we started wondering, you know, it is a, a kind of a basic question in anthropology, technologies, tools, <laughs> as part of what changes society and wanting to understand not just the possibilities, but the constraints. Uh, what are the conditions that are going to make this technology that could connect people in quite radically different ways, reorient us to each other, help people see each other differently, help them see themselves differently? How will it um, change the work of building solidarity around questions? I was wondering if you could uh, say a little bit more about your answer to that question of, you know, what difference does the internet make? Or uh, what, what, what makes the, maybe even as an anthropologist, what makes the internet or technology as we think of it now, like different than other forms of tools that we have? Yeah, I feel like the thing that was the hardest to learn um, was that actually it's never just the technology doing anything. So I think we, we often... Um, and part of the modern condition is to imagine innovation will change everything. The technology will interrupt or intervene or take some of the weight off our shoulders to do the very hard work of brokering a new way of being in the world. And it doesn't, <laughs> it can't fix things. It, it can't. It can't change things in and of itself. So in fact, what I learned, and in some ways it was leaving anthropology formally and getting training in media studies, mostly through this really um, amazing group of scholars who were themselves at the margins of their own disciplines in sociology, history, political science. It was learning that, that when we're studying, quote unquote, what technology does, really what we're doing is looking for the relationships that we build the way we imagine technology will bind us, bridge our difference, and that it's in that imagining and that projection, those relationships we build with technology, with each other, that things start shifting. So it's it's the it it, it alone, the whatever we want to fill that box with, with whether it's a laptop, <laughs> if I think of um, Charisma Machines by Morgan Ames or you know, other really fantastic scholarship on thinking about uh, how much we load technologies uh, as though they were carriers of our, um, and, you know, kind of keepers of our dreams. <laughs> that, they're, that at the end of the day, at least the research I have, ethnographically, if we look at what happens when it lands in people's lives, it turns, up, it, it turns out that they, they pick up those technologies and they are placing them, reworking them in the relationships they already have. Uh, they're working through the constraints they already deal with every day. Mary, you, uh, you seem to wear a lot of hats <laughs> and I see your work in academia and also in industry and you come from this Native American studies and anthropology background, but you're also kind of labeled as an AI ethicist. <laughs> and I know that with that many titles, there's probably a lot of research questions and projects that you're actively working on that you have worked on in the past. So I'm wondering if you can unpack that a little bit for us and, and for the listeners. What are the questions that you are actively asking right now? Yeah. Hey, Jess, I realized I didn't say hello at the beginning of the, of the broadcast. Hi. <laughs> okay. um, I think for me, the through line, and in, I want to be really honest that I, I think I often look at a project that I'm drawn into, and then after I'm usually halfway through it, I, I think about, I reflect on how does it connect to the, the broader questions that concern me, that the, it might be I'm really asking the same question over and over again, which is in what ways do technologies make us more and less visible to each other, more and less understood by each other? And in answering that question or or arriving at some tentative sense of an answer to that question, 
I'm, I'm looking at what are the assumptions that the tacit theories we're working with all the time that are blown apart when we um, manage to articulate our identities differently, say, uh, through uh, web pages or through our tweets. Or in the case of other um, research I've done around labor, thinking how do technologies that are effectively now work sites distributed around the world remake the relationships that people have to their visibility and their coherency as a worker. And seeing the, um, the incomplete, the partial project that comes with like what we think people should do with certain technologies and then this groundswell of how people manage uh, where that um, sense of power or control or clarity uh, gets noisy and falls apart. I'm uh, so some of the hats that that Jess mentioned was anthropologist and uh, then also threw in this AI ethicist world. And I, um, I'm, well, actually between Jess and I, we're people that are trying to bridge some of that humanities plus technologist uh, gap, or maybe it's not a gap. Um, and we would love to hear some of your thoughts on that, on, on wearing those hats. So do you, do you identify as an AI ethicist? Like, is that something that you bring to your work? Do you identify as an anthropologist? Do you just not like labels? <laughs> I don't think I like labels. I mean, in, in, in queer fashion, because I ultimately I did come out as queer and I, I think of queerness as a practice, not really an identity. I'm pretty anti-identitarian. And, you know, for other scholars listening to this, in some ways it's um, understanding what kind of work can I do that'll resonate with particular communities that do have a very um, cohesive, uh, in some ways constrained sense of identity and be able to translate or make sense to them. So I don't know, you know, I think the, the troubling thing about the, the label of AI ethicist is that it suggests that it's a way of thinking or a set of theoretical frameworks. And to me, um, ethics is a praxis. I mean, it is both practice and theory, and it is a constant questioning of how did I arrive at this is what I'm supposed to do. It's the supposed to do that is at the heart of most of what interests me. I mean, queer studies is one of my favorite go-to go -to toolkits for how do I look at what is assumed to be normative, typical, and tear apart and contextualize the, how we arrived there? What's the genealogy in a Foucauldian way? What's the genealogy of arriving at? This is what we're supposed to do, because in all cases, that's a story about what we're supposed to do. It doesn't make it less valuable or important, but it's a deliberation um, of of different people, stakeholders, who are looking at what do we believe we're supposed to do. And to me, the radical um, intervention of queer studies is to, is to always pose the question, we arrived at this as a, as a narrative. It's not a given, it's not natural, it's not how things should be. It's how we can make them. It, it is to constantly open up the project of, this will be how we make it. You know, I, I think I lay claim or maybe Pulled the, <laughs> pulled the hat of AI ethicist toward me because, you know, now that I'm in an industry setting, my hope is that I can say there are ways, there are established practices within critical humanistic social sciences that could apply here. You know, we, we, we mostly are um, a world of data-driven insights when we're talking about computer science and engineering. And I think one of the most valuable contrib contributions of critical humanistic social sciences is that it can say, in all cases, those are the, those data points are, are really stand-ins for um, for you and for me and for us, and to flesh out and populate and, and humanize that world so that we never escape that reality that we're talking about. Really, the the um, it's not really debris. It's you know it's it's this. You know, it's an iteration, it's, it's some instantiation of our social exchanges. And I think there's a set of disciplines that are really good at reading the tea leaves of social interactions and, and, and social exchange. So it's, it's bringing that 
domain expertise of seeing data as really um, uh, material to read uh, as, as moments of social engagement that I hope are what I can bring to the conversation around AI and ethics. No, definitely. Yeah. And, and while we're talking about data, I know that data is like so important for part of your work, especially when it comes to your book, uh, Ghost Work, How to Stop Silicon Valley from Building a New Global Underclass. And um, first, it'd be great if you could just kind of introduce the book and what it's all about. But then I specifically am curious what your thoughts are about um, the importance of data and how um, you think that it's representative of humans and social interactions and more than just uh, a number or a, a yeah. <laughs> I, I must hat tip a few people. If, if uh, folks read Bowker and Gittleman's collection, Raw Data is an Oxymoron, or read Ruha Benjamin's Race After Technology, you know, there, there are a number of fantastic pieces of scholarship that help challenge the notion that the data is something static. It is also a narrative. We have a story around what is valuable data. We have a story around where data comes from. And I say that so that we see it as something to interrogate, to, to, to not naturalize. Again, Queer Studies is fantastic at constantly calling the question on where we naturalize, naturalize something as a given to be taken, right? So the thing about data is that it's presented as it's there, it's just there. It's sitting on the table, it's sitting on your desktop, why can't I have it? And so um, ghost work is, is really, you know, again, for me, a continuation of the, the, the questions that I love to ask. It was coming to Microsoft Research, having finished uh, a, a project before that out in the country that was thinking about rural young people who are using the internet to come out and connect to queer communities, getting to Microsoft Research and understanding that artificial intelligence um, had a particular narrative about being able to replace people and wanting to understand how, how would that work? Like quite literally what's being built, um, what are the kinds of algorithmic models that can discern and divine human decision-making that are going to replace people? What are the assumptions about what people bring to human decision-making that are embedded in that. And so the beginning of that work was really just asking like, so how is, how is this stuff built? What is artificial intelligence? And I did not know, um, if we think about machine learning, I had no idea how much the development of artificial intelligence is really attributable to so much user-generated content being sucked up by um, tech companies that could effectively uh, replace the very, very difficult work of annotating and cleaning data sets so that they had a ground truth of what exactly did a person decide and could have many versions of this looks like a decision. This is a click to the left, a click to the right. This is a, you know, someone who said this is a cat. And then at the same time, not realizing even after you've, you know, a tech company can suck up all of that um, data that we are unaware is being taken from us through, from our social exchanges in most cases, it still requires a ton of people hired in the moment to annotate that data and make sure it's a clean training data set for developing a model of decision-making. So that blew my mind. And it, it, the, the book really started with who are these people you're hiring, my dear friends, who are doing, um, you know, developing algorithmic models for human decision making? And when they answer, you know, I don't know. <laughs> I was just, I was a bit surprised, and then I was quite compelled when I would continue to ask that question, and and the, the question, the response to that question, ranged from I don't really know to human computation means I don't have to know. I can just have somebody do this task. I don't have to know who they are. And many people are doing it. And then what I need comes back to me. It's amazing. And then meeting the folks who actually felt quite um, both curious and concerned that they they don't know and they're afraid to find out. Like what are what are the work conditions of somebody doing this work? And this was like 2012, 2013. And that is when I met my co-author and collaborator, Siddhar Suri, who was he was the first person I met who did quite a bit of behavioral experiments using human computation, who, when I asked, do you know who these people are? He said, I don't know, but I'd like to find out. 
you know, that was really the beginning of it. And it, it is, to your question, Jess, hooked to what constitutes data. Like, how do we construct data? And it turns out through not just the human decisions that we're looking at and pulling off of myriad platforms, social media and other data sources, but that human labor that's integral to making it valuable. One uh, dynamic that's coming to mind for me, and, and Jess and I have been talking about this quite a bit in our own work, where we sometimes have... Um, some critique of Silicon Valley or some critique of the tech industry. Uh, and at the same time, we have colleagues that are within it. We've both been within it ourselves. Um, and we're talking to you who is, you know, working for Microsoft while at the same time, and sometimes people see Microsoft as like one of the paramounts of uh, Silicon Valley. And you're also coming out with a book that's saying, you know, how to stop Silicon Valley. Um, and I'm wondering how you navigate that space as being kind of part of it and then also able to critique it? I want to say that I hope everyone, when they read this book or they hear me speak or they, you know, we have a chance to connect at a conference, asks that question. Like, what's the relationship be between the work I produce and being funded by, underwritten by an institution that produces these technologies? Um, and the reason I think that's an important question to ask is because they're, they're, it, all scholarship is located somewhere. Some institution is funding and setting priorities for researchers. And when I was at Indiana University full time on faculty there um, for most of my first book, finishing that book, I'm in a very particular setting that um, you know, resonated with me, resonated with that project. I literally felt uh, and did um, at many times take that work back out to the country, <laughs> like to talk with young people who I'd worked with. So for this project, being in, a, in an industry funded, re, you know, basic lab meant I had to come to grips with what exactly uh, is my project here um, and what who do I want to speak to? Who's my audience? And so, um, interestingly, and, and you know, I, there's a there's a real luxury here uh, at Microsoft Research, in that it's really the last industry-based lab that that I'm aware of that has no check on its research. I don't. It's not vetted through a, a legal um, department. PR appreciates when we let them know before a publication comes out that might be seen as critical. Microsoft itself does not take a stand on our research precisely, so they cannot comment on um, pro or con uh, what we find. And I think that's actually unique to Microsoft research precisely because, and it's in a funny spot as a Silicon giant, uh, one, it's not in Silicon Valley, um, but at the same time, you know, it, it is an elder statesperson in in this setting, and it it has the luxury of building most of its wealth on technologies that are seen as closed systems, you know, that are kind of value neutral. Now we absolutely all know that's not true, and if you're coming from a different um, position, uh, we can absolutely talk about the politics of all this software. But importantly, it fed in and really took on the mantle of Bell Labs. It fed this basic science called computer science when it was just coming up. So it has always held this very particular position, carried the mantle of we're here to advance this science. And I think that me joining the lab and my colleagues, Charlton Gillespie, Kate Crawford, Dana Boyd, Nancy Bain, we're a, a, an interesting set, uh, the social media collective. <laughs> we stand out, but in some ways it's a signal of a few people within Microsoft Research saying, gosh, this was 10 years ago, gosh, we are starting to do stuff that seems to engage society. And of course, when we came in the door, we were like, yes, you have been all along. Let us talk to you about that. But we could probably all say that um, and agree that, that 
so much of technology now more obviously is um, the premier socio-technical system. It, it shapes and is shaped by society. Technology is shaped and shapes technology um, to our society. So um, let me say that one more time so you have a clean edit. <laughs> that, um, you know, it, it, it really is the socio-technical system we've all been waiting for in science technology studies. It, it shapes and is shaped by society, that technology is shaped and shaped, uh, shapes and shapes, shaped by uh, society. So, you know, I say that and I'm emphatic about that because I don't think that's obvious to our colleagues in computer science and engineering. And I am, I, uh, I think it's actually important for political work to have a full spectrum of agitation. Um, I used to be a big rock thrower. <laughs> um, and I, I right now feel like I'm, um, part of the political work that's there to, um, to offer explanation and hold my judgment for as long as I can, hold as much compassion as I can for colleagues that are um, just learning that they're actually building social systems with consequences, severe consequences. And, and maybe the next topic for us is, I actually believe they can be doing so much better, they just have never been taught how. Mm. And the the social consequences and this shaping of society that we see from so many huge tech companies, this is something that you've talked a lot about in your work. And something that um, Dylan and I actually really appreciate is that your work is advocating for these ghost workers and for so many invisible people. And um, I would love if you could talk a little bit more about what some of that ghost work looks like. And even in a, a modern day scenario, we're, we're here on Zoom because we're uh, living in the COVID-19 pandemic. And so what's like a, a current application that we can see ghost work in right now living in the times of COVID? Yeah, so the work that we were studying, it, it, it's both the work of data labeling, uh, captioning, translation work, um, uh, co content review and moderation that is meant to, as we were earlier discussing, train, clean up training data so that it can effectively be used for machine learning. But that's one stream of the work. The, the, the much of what we were studying and, and what I want to connect it to is this other stream of work that is the continuation of the casualization uh, and really the dismantlement of full-time employment. So to see that broader trend and what happens when you take technologies, algorithms, application programming interfaces, and the internet, and put those to the task of um, dismantling a full-time job of office work and turning it into a string of tasks that are distributed and reorienting what you're accomplishing in that moment is really aggregating people quickly for a snap judgment, um, a, a moment of um, human intervention, and then letting computation continue the process of delivering a service. So content moderation, if I had said two years ago, content moderation was a thing that people do, I don't think most people would have been able to understand that. And I actually feel like it's so, we're just now coming to this awareness of that's a great example. And I point everybody to Sarah Roberts, fantastic work on this behind the screen. Um, and also Tartan Gillespie's work, um, Custodians of the Internet, to realize technology companies also have been buying into this story that they will be able to automate human decision-making in these critical function, functions like content moderation. But it turns out, and any humanist would catch this in a moment, that it's actually quite difficult to discern when something is being said out of love or hate, right? So capturing and automating the filtering of hate speech, that is, that's just spitting in the wind. <laughs> Precisely because so much of language constantly changes, so much of what we experience as hateful or loving is contextual, who says it? when, why, and there's, um, you know, that's the kind of work that we were studying that's turned into that second stream of contract-based, very quick, 
combining of computation and, and human creativity and snap judgment. And when I say snap, mostly it's you know thinking I, I need to have somebody answer a request very quickly. That's true of telehealth. That's text-based customer sort, uh, support. It's quite mundane, and it's that it's that world of um, I like using the phrase information service work. You know, to see how much information service work is now the way in which service economies draw in digital tooling to be able to route requests, um, to be able to bring teams of people together to, to work on a project and you need somebody who has a different set of programming skills, for example, and you're bringing them to the table. That's, that's the world of work that we're describing that is under the surface that most people do not track or see and it isn't a 20-year career at a firm. It is, it is being a contract worker to fill a particular job that is time-bound and moving on uh, from, from that work. And that technology can effectively elide and, and in many cases, not just hide, but devalue um, the, the people who are doing that work because they come in, they come out, they come in, they come out. Uh, we know the economic principle of churn works against workers' best interests. So we're we're living in a really, I'm going to say, a really incredible time in history right now. Uh, incredible in all the different ways that we could define incredible. And there's a lot of processes happening in parallel. So there's a moment of reckoning around race in the United States right now. There's also, we're living through, as Jess mentioned earlier, COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, we have folks like yourself and like our former guest, Lilia Rani, talking about, you know, Amazon Mechanical Turk and how we produce research. And I'm wondering if you see these all as part of a similar pattern uh, or how you connect all of these various things that are happening in this, quote unquote, incredible time that we're living in. So to me, it's the collision of these two structural changes that have been going on for 20 years. Um, and in the book, there's a history chapter that really takes it um, back much further. But in more recent times, and particularly through the internet's capacity to distribute information, we have both the, the rise of the use of the internet to contractualize whatever can be contractualized, anything you can find on your desk that can be parsed out. And I can, and then a company can look for cheaper labor elsewhere that can fulfill the work that needs to be done. That's the heart of, of Lily Rani's Chasing Innovation, is seeing where we start moving the centers and margins of value globally. But there's this second, um, this second significant, significant uh, structural shift, which is every business, it's not just niche jobs, every business seeing, oh, I've got this mechanism that as I strive for, you know, some sort of automation of a particular business process um, from marketing, writing, branding, podcasting, you name it, that I want to figure out which of the pieces of what I need to do can I identify as rote and then script them and automate them. That it's the surge of the, the approach across all sectors to, I wanna break off those pieces and turn that into something that is not part of my full-time employee's day job. And so it's, it's, it's watching the collision of those two realities arise in service economies that are information services that mostly define economic activity. And, and that's the, that is the um, delivery driver who is picking up a food order and bringing it to someone's home as much as it is someone who's doing telehealth, who's a nurse navigator helping me stay on my medication, right? See those two as, um, as workers within service economies that now turn to digital technologies and tooling that are also very much information workers. And then that second structural shift of more and more companies saying, you know, to meet my service economy needs, I'm going to use this mechanism that can source, schedule, manage, ship, bill, 
what I need done through a mixture of the internet, some software. I mean, I want us to all think in really mundane ways when we talk about AI, we're not talking full automation. We're mostly talking some businesses that chase full automation because you get bank chasing full automation. And most of work being hit by the semi-automation and taskification of their day job. And that's the thing I'm hoping people will track, that the, the accountability that I want tech industry and engineers building a platform that is software, I'm air quoting all of that, to see you are constructing a worksite. You're building a worksite. There is no part in history where work conditions were ever um, good if they were left to be determined by the people doing the hiring um, or by the people who were doing the tooling. We have always needed work conditions to be defined and um, fortified by policy, by our social safety net. So if you think about everything built for our social contract and our safety net around employment is, is actually hooked to a very specific technology, the factory floor, right? So if we see that environment as a particular kind of techne, a tech, you know, a technology that means there are social relations that are shot through the structuring of certainly people's work. And I'm not just talking about Taylorism, I'm, I'm talking about the way in which we imagined who will enter that building. How do we incent people, more people, to have opportunities to, to enter that building, shift work as a way of organizing our day, all of that. That's what's radically changed in this setting and, and really arguably around the globe, and that's why we studied India and the United States. It didn't change for many people who have been living in informal economies, cash-based economies that exchange services every day. And now they have a mobile phone that helps them do that. Like that to me, it's, it's orienting to, we might've just experienced a blip of seeing full-time employment as the way to orient our, um, our social contract. And this work, this way of organizing on-demand markets through technologies, for me is an opening up of how do we think about equipping every working adult so they have a set of essential benefits that are not a part of a factory floor or their time card. Yeah, I want to keep digging into this second structural change, actually talking about automation and uh, specifically the future of work. I'm curious how you think automation will impact and is impacting the future of work in terms of, you know, more jobs, less jobs. Is this good? Is this bad? Um, yeah. What is your opinion on this? <laughs> Yeah, it's really interesting because when we first started this research, it was the beginning of the rise of the robots, um, Martin Ford's work, um, you know, plenty of really interesting books that were mostly speculative. They were either by economists or technologists who had um, kind of fever dreams of robots taking over. And I think that to me is the value of the methodology we take to the study of what does work look like today? if we're applying this mechanism that more and more companies are applying to um, distribute the work they have to be done. What that suggests is that the future of work is, a, is more about what will the organization of an employment relationship look like? How will it be algorithmically managed in part, right? That tracking that to me helps us understand the future of work. That's why I think the present is a better place to look for. Well, what does that look like? Well, it looks like people not having a reliable person to call when their account is closed or suspended for no good reason. Well, that needs to be fixed. It looks like not thinking very deeply about what work needs to happen right now. Think Amazon Mechanical Turk. And what is actually a task that doesn't need to be time bound? So in our research, realizing there were plenty of projects that actually that, that they could have communicated, I don't need this right now. And somebody could have taken a break. They could have built in a pause button. Why isn't that pause button there? Because they weren't thinking about it. Platforms were not thinking, oh, I should provide that. 
the biggest, the thing that blew my co- my co-author's mind, just how many people collaborate off platform. We have zero clue. And now, you know, our research shows how much people who were most invested in task-based work are, are off platform providing social connections, mentoring support that you would expect to find in, in any office setting. Of course, that's happening. None of that's facilitated. Why? Not because it's not technologically possible, but because there's so much conservative reading of the current legal statutes and a lack of legal um, direction on if you support people collaborating, are you an employer of record? Are you, are you liable for what an employer should be providing? And because most firms, especially small firms, they're working with margins that mean they are not going to hire everyone as a, an employee in the United States because that comes with, right now, a set of um, benefits that must be provided by an employer. That's stupid. I just want to, like, if I had to say what's unethical, because I rarely just call anything unethical, it's unethical to leave something as fundamental as healthcare to whether you happen to have a good job or not. When we look back in history, we will see just how cataclysmic a decision, how unethical a decision that is. And at the end of the day, I don't believe this is about good or bad intention or good or bad um, thinking. It's what are our actions? What are the consequences? How do we constantly interrogate where we are? to move in a direction of where we want to be? What is the deliberation around that shared vision of future? What does it look like? So, so I do see more, um, I mean, it's, I'm not projecting, like we know, what what is every what is every business learned in the pandemic? Oh, some of my work can actually be accomplished by people who are working um, outside of a work site. They don't need to be at a shared work site. So what can I offload? to a form of employment that does not cost me a work site. That is neither a good nor a bad thing. That's a thing that's happening. What do we do about it? One of the ways that we see this Radical AI podcast project is as a political project. And by political, I don't mean partisan, right? I mean, in terms of, you mentioned Foucault earlier, right? Like we're talking about power here and systems of power and how those interconnect. Uh, And I'm really curious for you, because you mentioned your political uh, history, and then also it still seems like you identify as a political person, and you've also thrown in the word radical a few times here. And we always like to ask our uh, ask our guests, as you know, the Radical AI podcast, uh, what you mean by that, and whether you identify as radical in some way. No, I don't think I'm radical. I mean, I wish I was, and I have been in my past. And I think a, a, a radical political actor um, carries the banner, um, perhaps sometimes with uh, quite a bit of friction and anger, to to um, call out what is not happening. And you know, I'm saying this out loud. I'm like, I haven't really thought of. I I, I don't think I've uh, have a good sense of what I think radical is anymore. Um, I'm very much moved by um, pragmatism. It's some of, you know, that is some of my training and grounding. Um, I'm, um, I, I believe in nonviolence. I think that's a radical act. Um, and at the same time, I feel like the role I have to play in the setting I'm in at the moment uh, is precisely to be um, um, a bridge builder, a peacemaker, uh, to be able to absorb the critiques of my colleagues who want more to change faster and to absorb the critiques of my colleagues who feel like they're being pushed and don't know what direction to go and to be able to listen, uh, to have compassion um, and to sit with the discomfort of wanting things to change and knowing there are people who are bearing far more of the, the risk and the loss of things being the way they are. Before we began this conversation, um, we were talking a little bit about what we wanted to talk about in this 
uh, dialogue and we mentioned a little bit about possible like you know, colorblind racism that's happening in technology spaces and then also uh, the well-being of, of healthcare workers. But I, I kind of want to frame that question in terms of this idea of compassion, because when we talk to folks, even just informally, when Jess and I talk to folks, it, it's really hard to have compassion. <laughs> I think I think it's really difficult. And I think you, in uh, the public spaces that, that you interact with, like you're really modeling that for folks. Um, so if you have, uh, if you can just solve compassion for us in the next few minutes, that would be that would be wonderful. But how do we have compassion for this world that we've been given? Uh, it's a team sport. So I actually believe that compassion isn't um, uh, one person's job. It's it's how do we, within settings where we want to create change, have agreement um, or negotiation or um, create space for each other to act in different ways and understand where those actions are coming from. Um, now for me, like cultivating a, a sense of um, understanding so that I'm not assuming someone is uh, acting in malice and that 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 individual, even when I um, feel like they are doing something terrible, um, believing, and it is a belief, it's not a truth, believing that there is some capacity for them to um, change uh, and that I will be changed as they change. Like that is what that is what feeds my ability to um, sit with where things are, um, not in a not in a static way, but in um, knowing that in a move where I'm telling somebody what to do, um, that is its own kind of violent. Because I feel like right now, you know, I don't know anybody whose heart doesn't feel broken again, over again. It's been it's actually been quite uh surprising to see the mainstreaming of um of white people caring differently about black lives but caring differently about their own complicity their own complacency complacency their own um uh participation in circulating oppression and i feel like the Again, back to queer studies. The thing, one of the most important things I've learned um, when I came up and out through queer studies and through queer movement was this um, understanding that it's not about finding how we're all the same under the skin. It is genuinely saying we are so different and I am better for taking in your difference and understanding your difference. Like that I am, I am, a better person for for that and the compassion to me does come from this place of believing that the, the training I received in um, in thinking about my role the racism I perpetuate every day as a white person um, I don't I was saying this to somebody earlier this week like I don't transcend that in my life as an individual like that's not how this works it is constantly coming to that awareness that what I change is it's not going to be about me as an individual it is being part of this collective sense of wanting things to be different um, because it is so diminishing to have power because of historical um violence and that there's not a person who escapes that that that's that's true of every social norm so you know straight folks out there accept that every day you are part of what perpetuates oppression for me you know and then what do we do about that i think that's where the compassion comes from is accepting there's just no way to move in the world as a human without perpetuating systems that naturalize how things should be. And in that, that means there is destruction and violence against folks who don't fall within those categories. Ah, and here to me is the connection to AI and ethics. That ethics is precisely coming to that awareness, sitting with that awareness and 
being part of reflecting on how can we do otherwise? Like to let it be this open question that's constantly remaking itself. You don't get to land on the, the de-biased data. You know, I'm so thankful. We moved really quickly through that. Well, I think we are. <laughs> I see these moments where I'm like, okay, some older white dudes have not, but that's okay, that's okay. I would say most of the folks coming up understand who are listening to this podcast, there is no depiasing data and we get to move on. And this goes to the core of what we were talking about earlier. That means much of what we have to learn is to stop thinking about this as a, a data set to perfect and to assume that this is about constantly rebuilding our social relationships with each other and that technologies have always been a part of that. And that is, that is what we come to when we're building anything, that we are entering a social world steeped in pain and oppression and beauty. And there is no escaping those, those, the tensions across those things. So maybe that for me is where compassion comes from, because then I'm not looking at somebody who's saying something that's super frustrating and completely dismissing the possibility that um, if they don't change, our conversation might change someone who's listening. As Dylan and I have been running this project, um, especially since we're situated in the AI ethics space, we we see this come up again and again, not just compassion, but this um, discomfort and learning to sit in that discomfort and be okay with it and accept it so that we can utilize it and do something with it and create critiques that are actually actionable. And so um, we definitely appreciate your definition and also the work that you're doing on all of this. Um, but unfortunately, Mary, we are out of time for this interview. So for folks who would like to engage more deeply with your work and um, maybe get in touch with you, what's the best way for them to do that? Probably at me on Twitter. And you can look at my website, um, marylgray.org. And um, if you want more about the book, Ghostwork, you can go to ghostwork.info. And it has a primer. It's got some materials for people who might be teaching the book. And I'm happy to answer any questions people might have. Great. Well, thank you so much for coming on again, Mary. It's been a pleasure to have you. Thanks so much for the invitation. Again, we want to thank Mary Gray for coming on the show today and for a wonderful conversation in which, again, we covered so much ground. I felt like there was so much just content that I wanted to dig into uh, more than we had time to. Uh, just Mary is just such a brilliant scholar and such a compassionate person. Uh, and we can talk more about compassion in our conversation. But Jess, I'm curious what stood out to you in this interview with Mary. First, I think I'd just like to say that talking to Mary made me feel so comforted. Um, it, it just kind of felt like we were having like a conversation with a colleague and just casually chatting about, you know, like the future of work. And uh, although those aren't really casual conversations, it was just like a very calming conversation, which was nice because sometimes talking about these things can be a little bit uncomfortable and it can, um, you know, raise feelings of anxiety or um, fear for the future. And so it's kind of nice just to be able to have those conversations and be a little bit not emotionally removed, but to feel um, supported by the people that you're having those conversations with and to have that safe space to be able to just like explore into topics that might make you feel a little bit of discomfort. Uh, but I think especially one of the topics that really was standing out to me that we talked with Mary about was when she was explaining uh, her position of being in Silicon Valley, but then also being uh, critical and critiquing Silicon Valley. And that's something that I just think is like really special, especially for someone who wears so many hats like Mary does. There's a lot of people who are in positions in Silicon Valley, whether they're in positions of power or maybe feeling um, disempowered by wherever they they lie. Um, it's, it's interesting to be able to take the critique that many people have of Silicon Valley and potentially have the ability to do something with that when you are, um, quote unquote, in the belly of the beast. 
And it reminded me uh, a little bit of uh, the advice that Miriam Sweeney gave in our interview with her uh, about just the importance of being critical. And um, I loved Miriam's words too, because she was talking about how being critical and, and critiquing things doesn't have to be something that's you know negative or super pessimistic. It can actually be a really great way to just hold the things that are so important to you more accountable. And she even said, this is like a direct quote from her interview, that it just means you're holding uh, those systems, you know, politicians, companies, to a new accountable standard. And I felt like Mary had some really great insight on what it uh, felt like to be in that position of critiquing things, uh, as well as, you know, being funded by them and doing work by them and, and being situated within the things that you're critiquing. And so it's, it's definitely an interesting lens to view that critique from. And I've said critique about 20 times now, so I'm going to pass the mic to you, Dylan. Uh, what, what were your immediate reactions to this interview? Mostly just critique. Uh, it's probably awesome. Uh, no, my, um, so it's like when, when Mary get, gets on the call, so you, whenever you get on the call with someone like on a zoom call and you haven't talked to them before, and maybe it's taken a while to get it set up and they're like a big name in, in the industry, in the world, like Mary is, uh, you always kind of wonder like how those first like five seconds are going to go. Like what energy are you going to bring to it? What energy is the guest going to bring to it? Maybe they're having like a chaotic day or, or whatever. And this was one of those times where we got on the call and I just like, and I say this as a minister, right? Like I immediately felt ministered to. Um, there's just something about like Mary's presence in this space uh, where I feel like she just had so much immediate respect for us as uh, not just colleagues, like in a professional sense, but just as like people where we're trying to like figure out the answers to these same questions and doing it in like a, a collaborating way, um, a collaborative way. And uh, that, that was the first thing that struck me is like, is like her presence. And I think this came up when Mary began talking about her role as a senior principal researcher and as a professor. And again, all the many hats that she wears, how she sees herself as a bridge builder and a peacemaker. And I was really taken aback when she said that because what I what I was expecting this was in the radical conversation, right, where we asked her what radical meant to her and all that. And I really had expected her to be like, oh yeah, no, this is this is what radical means to me, and this is what I this is what I mean, uh, and this is how I situate myself in it. And uh, I just felt really disarmed by the, the her understanding her role as a bridge builder, peacemaker, and and a pragmatist uh, in that space, um, and that. I still, I think, am processing like what that means, what that looks like, um, maybe for me, because that's like how I want to see myself in that space, right? It's like, well, how do you do that? Well, how do you bring the pragmatism uh, together with the peacemaking and with the bridge building? Um, and I think what it sounded like for Mary is that it all comes together in this concept of compassion and ability to have difficult conversations, to sit with discomfort, but to remain at the table with one another even through all of that discomfort. And I think the last thing that I would like to highlight from this interview is this conversation at the end about how we're all complicit, uh, about how as a straight person, I am complicit in the oppression of the LGBTQI plus community. Uh, as a white person, I'm complicit in the oppression and the marginalization of uh, the black community and you know the list goes on and I think that was the most like uh, uncomfortable part <laughs> of this conversation um, for me uh, and I think we should and maybe for you honestly listeners uh, as when you heard Mary talking about that and I think that's so important no matter where we are situated in the academy or industry or just as, as people new to the space maybe um, that that is so pivotal to doing the work uh, and, and being invited to do the hard work to make a more equitable, equitable space. And maybe this is a great opportunity as well, Dylan, for us to invite ourselves and also our listeners who might be feeling a little bit of discomfort at maybe some things that we talked about in this interview and uh, things that we talk about in any interview or just topics that come up in the AI ethics field to sit with that discomfort. This is something that we really encourage you to do as you listen to some of the conversations that we have on the show. If you feel like you're pushing back on an idea, if you feel like you're being pulled to challenge your own opinions or predispositions, sit with that discomfort. Question why you may think what you think and invite yourself to feel 
compassion. And I think that's one of our hopes for this show uh, is to invite folks and uh, especially through the conversation started with our guests, invite listeners into these uncomfortable spaces. Uh, because again, that's, that's where the work is. That's where the growth is. That's where the development is. And uh, honestly, with a show called Radical AI, if we're not making you uncomfortable at some point, then we're probably not doing our job. Um, so we would love to hear about it, honestly. Like if you want to send us an email, if you don't want to say it publicly on Twitter, or if you want to tweet at us in ways that like some of these conversations are maybe pushing your boundaries in either wonderful ways or honestly difficult ways. Uh, I know Jess and I are pretty open on the show about different conversations we have in ways that they're challenging our own assumptions and biases and, and all of that. So we would love to... Uh, to have your commiseration, but also to have your vulnerability in continuing those conversations. And for more information on today's show, please visit the episode page at RadicalAI.org. If you enjoyed this episode, we invite you to subscribe, rate, and review the show on iTunes or your favorite podcatcher. Join our conversation on Twitter at RadicalAIPod. And as always, stay radical. Stay radical.